Before I get into this week's introduction, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone for the very kind and generous feedback following on from my interview with Eric Anders Lang. It's been a great week uh, to receive that feedback. It's really comforting to know that you are listening and you are enjoying the content that I'm putting out. But the one thing that stood out for me was the content that Eric was able to put out in the last week. Obviously, the tragic circumstances surrounding George Floyd and everything that we've seen in the media. I think Eric's taken a real leadership stance in the content that he's put out, made a real statement on behalf of you know, his belief and what he stands for, and also you know, what we as a golf community should be considering when we're looking at how golf can be an agent and an advocate for change. And I think through the Random Golf Club, as we move into the future, that will be one of the vehicles that golf will be able to use to be the leader of Everyone's Welcome. So I just wanted to say thanks for that and just to really highlight the great work that Eric's done in the, in the following week. It's been amazing. On to this week's episode. Once again, you get the chance to meet people in golf that sometimes you don't think that you'll ever get the chance to meet. And some of the people that you meet sometimes may not necessarily be high-profile sports people or high-profile content creators or the like. They might just be normal people with a normal story. Well, sometimes the normal story is more than just a normal story. And once you peel back the layer, you find out a huge level of information that you might not have otherwise found out. And today's interview with a gentleman by the name of Mel Hughes is exactly that. Mel was introduced to me by my good friend, John Cornish, and you'll hear from John in the podcast as well. I asked John to join us as because John was introducing me to Mel. But Mel, how do I describe it? You, you can listen and describe it. But if I told you that I was interviewing someone who had launched rockets, flew at Top Gear, studied in Georgia, had played more rounds at Augusta than he can remember, and was a personal friend and confidant of Bobby Jones... You probably wouldn't believe me. Well, that's who we're going to hear from today. Mel Hughes has a wonderful backstory that covers all of those topics that I just mentioned there, and it's a story that you really have to hear to believe. It's one of the uh, podcasts where you just sit back, turn on the earphones and relax, have a cup of tea, have a coffee, and just listen to someone who has such a broad and varied depth of exposure and experience into this wonderful game of golf. I really I really enjoyed recording this. Uh, it was just, for me, it was just sitting back listening and, and I enjoy hearing stories like this. And to be able to meet someone like Mel and to hear that, who we might not have ever heard of before. Maybe this is the first time that uh, Mel's story has been told. Maybe someone will listen to it and pass it on and maybe he'll get a chance to tell that story somewhere else as well. I really did enjoy recording this episode. I've actually made it into two parts because it was just so hard to, to wrap it up. I didn't want to wrap it up, you know, so Mel had a lot of, a lot of uh, information to share. So I'm going to release it in two parts. The first part is about an hour long and the second part about 45 minutes. So I'll put them out pretty close. But today's the first part of my interview with Mel Hughes. Thanks again for the feedback. Jump over to iTunes, leave us a review, leave us a message, leave us a like, a share, all of that stuff that you've been doing. I really do appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I'll just keep plugging away at these uh, podcasts. I'm really enjoying it. And uh, thanks for listening. Until next time, I'll uh, speak to you soon.
Now, John, I said in the in, in my introduction that uh, you were kind enough to you know introduce Mel as a potential guest on on the podcast, and it just seemed a no brainer for for us to let that chat happen. You know, I might let you take over for a little bit and just have a chat to Mel and, and tell us about how you guys know each other because it's a great story yeah. and a random you know just one of those random golf meeting stories that uh, we all love and and we've all got our own. So tell us how you guys got to got together. Yeah, well, um, you know, golf is one of those one of those pastimes that um, affords you the opportunity to meet so many um, so many people. You know, it's a, you get a great cross section of um, of of society, not only from uh, from your own country but from other countries as well, and especially golf travel, of which uh, you know I'm very interested in. I've, I've uh, travelled quite a lot to play uh, to play golf in different parts, and every now and again you come across uh, you come across people that just have amazing life stories. And you know, obviously, you can learn a lot more from other people than uh, than, than than you can teach, and and you um, and the sum total of that is, I guess, your 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 total knowledge of of life and um, and, and and experiences. And you know, Mel and I met uh, probably seven, eight, nine years ago uh, when Mel was travelling. Mel was uh, down in Victoria, and he was at the time we were we were at Barwon Heads Golf Club. And um, I was with another American friend who who was out travelling, and uh, as a two ball, we we're on the first tee, and one of the guys in the shop came over and asked if uh, if 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 a, if a single uh, could join us. Of course, yeah, come along for come along for the ride. And over the next four hours, we um, we played some golf, and we got to know Mel. And every now and again, Mel would pull out his uh, pull out an oversized camera and would take some photos of things that interested him, and. Uh, and uh, that became part of the conversation as well. So you know, through just through a chance, a chance meeting, built a friendship with, with, uh, with somebody who has a common interest in golf, but also has other interests, and really has an amazing life story to tell as well. And that's you know, when when we were talking um, a month or so ago, Roscoe, about um, about your podcast, and you know, I am an avid listen, listener to it, and I, I enjoy listening to. Um, to a lot of the stories that people have to tell, and I thought, you know, there's this guy that I know who um, who has an amazing an amazing um, history in golf. He's got uh, he's he's had a fairly amazing um, career. He has a passion for photography as well, which is not something that I necessarily share, but it's um, but I know a lot of your um, a lot of your previous um, guests have have um, you know enjoy those types of media pursuits. Yep. And Mel just happens to bring all that together um, into one one neat package sitting over there in uh, in Denver. So Mel, what was your recollection of uh, that first day down there at Barwon Heads uh, meeting John? Well, it was very similar. Um, when I went in, I asked the pro if there were any issues about taking photographs because I'm a avid photographer and. Well, my travels over the years, I've probably accumulated, I don't know, approaching 100,000 images from the world's top golf courses. And there are some clubs, even some commercial ones that react negatively to cameras. Uh, Shadow Creek in Las Vegas is one that hates cameras. Uh, it's interesting, Augusta National doesn't, but, you know, Shadow Creek does. So I asked the pro, it would be possible to play by myself because, uh, you never know if you're going to be with somebody who's uh, riding in a cart and they race out in front of you and then you're trying to take pictures and, and, and it does slow down the game a bit. So I just asked the pro if I could play alone. He said, no, he said, he could put me off on the backside, but it was going to be 
very slow and because of a tournament and uh, he said it'd be quicker to start on the front but there was a two ball and and I said, fine. I said, as long as they don't mind me taking pictures. And he goes, oh, they'll be fine. You know, it's a, a local and, a, you know, and a guest from America. So we joined up and I begged their forgiveness and we were all walking. So I didn't have to worry about them getting out in front of me with a cart. So we played and um, had a great time talking with John and uh, his friend Trey, who's from Mississippi and uh, or Alabama. I forget now. Mississippi, I believe. And um and we just stayed in touch and, uh, John's been in the States a number of times where we've been able to get together and play golf. And, uh, so as John said, it's just, uh, it's a great game for friendships and it's hard to have a conversation playing tennis. And I think one of the thing about great things about golf is that, uh, you know, I'm a avid table tennis player too. And you, you know, you, you can't really have a conversation and play table tennis. And so, um, uh, golf is a great way to spend four or five hours with people in an environment where you can't have a conversation. Now I'd like to spend most of our time or all of our rest of our time talking about you know, your story, but you know, let's talk about that golf that you experienced that day. Barwon heads. What drew you to Barwon heads to go and play? Well, in my work in the aerospace and defense industry with Lockheed Martin, I was president of a group of companies and, we had some extensive contracts in Australia. So I had been there on work probably every three or four months for a number of years. And I was just, uh, uh, and I started the quest to play the world's top hundred courses when I was asked about it by one of the vice presidents that worked for me back in 1997 or so. And so I knew the list existed, but I never really paid attention to them. So I got to looking at it and that coupled with the annual trip I took to Scotland and Ireland and England and Wales, I had played quite a few of them. Mm -hmm. And as I'm sure we'll get into, I'd already played Augusta. So, you know, it, it just became something I was doing and my work took me all over the world and it was, uh, and you can't work seven days a week. So, you know, we would have downtime and schedule golf and that's what I was doing. I was there, you know, with work, but, you know, trying to play golf and Barwin heads was just one of the courses that I hadn't played. And you look at various lists and it was on the list of nice courses. And so I went down to play it and walked out to the first tee and there's John Cornish. <laughs> and did, did Barwin heads, uh, you know, did it meet your, meet your expectations? Did it live up to its reputation? It's personally one of my favorites uh, down here in Victoria, but uh, did it, and you won't offend me if, well, this, if it didn't, but. Well, the setting is certainly beautiful and I enjoyed the course and the conversation and we went into town and, uh, John, now his wife, is his girlfriend at the time, Kay, you know, joined us and the four of us had a very pleasant lunch, you know, glass of wine. And so it was just, uh, the, the whole experience throughout that day. It's hard for me to separate the course. I mean, it's not any threat to the world's top hundred, but it was a very nice course and a very beautiful setting. And, and, um, and to me, golf, it's not religious, It's but I will say it is spiritual. And so these occasions when you have nice weather and an enjoyable course and a great conversation and a couple glasses of wine thrown in, and it's it's hard to beat the experience. So, yes, it lived up to my expectations. Yeah. Now, when John introduced you, know, you to me, he, he said uh, that your career was in, you know, I'll just broadly summarize it, in the world of, flight flying and and also golf and for me as a young person you know i was the one of these guys and you've probably had numerous people tell you a story like this but 
I wanted to be a pilot. You know, I was lucky enough to have uh, family in Scotland. You know, so from a very early age, you know, I was, had the ability to go and visit family in Scotland. So as a young boy growing up in country New South Wales, you know, I was one of the first kids in town that had ever been on a 747, you know, back in the 70s, you know, going to, you know, I think it was maybe a three or four leg journey back then. So I was always infatuated by flight. Golf came later. So if I asked you to introduce yourself in terms of your career and, and some of the background, how would, how would you describe that? Well, I was always interested in aviation and uh, in the late, I was born in 1946. So I was nine or 10 years old when the space program first got started with the Redstone rockets. And, and then when they selected the first Mercury astronauts and I realized that people were going to space, I was hooked. And I've been a space cadet every moment since then. Uh, you know, my son was a very good student, but struggled with what he wanted to do in life. And it was hard for me to help him because from the age of eight or nine or 10, I knew I wanted to be in the space business in one way or another. Um, my brother was very sick. And so the family, my mother and brother and I had to move to Florida to get him in more stable weather than the Northeast Arkansas climate that we were in. And my dad bought an airplane to start flying from Blyville, Arkansas to Pompano Beach, Florida. And I spent uh, the sixth, seventh, and eighth grades actually in Florida. And uh, uh, so I started flying. In fact, I had my private pilot's license before I had my driver's license. And so by the time I went into the Navy after graduating, getting out of graduate school at Georgia Tech, um, I had probably a thousand hours flying at that point. And so, uh, I was very much interested in being a Navy pilot and test pilot and then being an astronaut. And I got into the interviews at NASA, but uh, I thought I was too young and not as experienced as some of the other candidates. And I got frustrated with the Navy and so left and then joined Martin Marietta. But uh, so my start with aviation was uh, for you know, a desire to go to space. In fact, if NASA called me this afternoon, and asked me would I like to go on a one-way trip to Mars, I'd leave tomorrow morning. Yeah, right. So in that career, what were some of the you know, the more, I guess, intriguing things? What, what were some of the experiences that you had in your, your naval career and then you know, your aerospace career? Well, I, uh, when I, you know, I graduated in Georgia Tech and with several degrees in engineering and uh, – I had signed up into the Navy, and of course, this was during the Vietnam War, so I was going in the military one way or another, but obviously, Navy flight school was what I was interested in, and I picked Navy over the Air Force because I met John Young, you know, who's uh, the Apollo astronaut, and uh, and he was a Navy pilot and graduate of Georgia Tech, and he said that landing on an aircraft carrier was uh, spectacularly difficult, and um, so... Uh, so after leaving Georgia Tech, I started the Navy Flight School, and, uh, and because of the education I had and all the hours I had, I think I'd had the, the highest student grade for that year in the Naval Flight School, and so they let me pick where I wanted to go, and so I went to VX-5, which is an experimental test squadron in Channel 8, California. And so my first three years as an operational pilot was actually as a test pilot flying 
weapon system test missions. We weren't flying new airplanes, but we were flying and developing the tactics for weapon systems. And from there, I went to, you know, several attack squadrons, mostly flying A-7s and uh, aboard the USS Enterprise and had, I don't know, something around 500 carrier landings and, uh, and uh, got a chance to go to the fighter weapons school and people know as Top Gun. And, uh, uh, and from there, uh, when it became obvious, I wasn't going to or at least the odds of becoming an astronaut were pretty small. I decided that I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in the Navy. And so it's like a game of poker. They, they raised the bet, you know, cause up to then everything I had done in my life was focused on trying to be an astronaut. And, um, and I, I had the basic qualifications. It was just, it was such a select group that, uh, picking 10 people out of you know hundreds of millions it's a tough cut and i just decided i didn't want to be in the navy the rest of my life and if i didn't make an astronaut i knew i would stay in the navy as a career and that's not what i wanted to do so i uh left and went back and actually worked for my dad for two years building houses back in blyville arkansas and was contacted by martin marietta in denver and i came out here in july of 1980 and started a career in aerospace and defense and you know, as a manager of system engineering on the Peacekeeper Intercontinental Ballistic Missile System, and then chief engineer on the small ICBM, then I ran Titan II and Titan IV Space Launch Vehicle Program. Titan IV was the largest rocket in the world at that time. And then I was uh, ran business, uh, business development organization in there and was sent down to Arizona to be president of that operating company. And and uh, there's not a lot I can say about that because it was classified work, but the, the company invented synthetic aperture radar, which is a very sophisticated s sensor that is used in intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance. And um, from there, I was the CEO and president or president and chief operating officer of a couple different uh, aerospace startups. And in parallel with that, started my own consulting business, which uh, I continue to this day. In fact, I just finished two days of, in fact, we had to delay this uh, podcast two days because I had, uh, you know, design review and telecons with British Aerospace in the last couple of days, all virtual because of the virus. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I'm one of these. I love what I do and work and I can't imagine not doing it. And, uh, you know, I don't like gardening. And so I, uh, I'd be quite content to die at work, but, uh, you know, I've worked on some of the country's most intriguing space and uh, science programs. In fact, Titan IV had 41 vehicles and 40 missions. And the only unclassified mission, we launched Cassini to Saturn. I mean, and so when you're building $300 million rockets, launching multi-billion dollar spacecraft to Saturn or uh, national security overhead assets for the country, uh, it's... Uh, it's hard to give that up as long as you can contribute to the country's national security and something that is intellectually challenging to me. Uh, it's, it's hard to turn down. Plus it gave me an opportunity to travel the world, you know, which was a, if you will, an airline ticket to any golf course that I wanted or could, you know, try to get on. Well, in, in your career wise, who, you know, who would be the most interesting people that you've met? You know, is there anyone that, you know, in terms of names that we would recognize that you've you know had the occasion to spend some time with and you know, just experience that you know might interest us all 
Well, uh, been a number. I mean, yeah. uh, although, you know, my first and I started golf cause my dad who did not play golf, but was one of the people that helped found the little country club in Blyville, Arkansas. And we lived out near it and, uh, in a little town of 15,000 people that are all cotton farmers or soybean farmers. And my dad was in construction, had a company that built streets and roads and houses and airbase runways and that sort of stuff, interstate highways and overpasses. There wasn't a lot to do. And so there was a golf course out there. And so I took up golf at age six or seven, turned out I had a little talent for it. And, uh, so I'd come home from school and go to the golf course. And so I was taught by a couple of pros, Fred Bedford and George Teal. In fact, George was interesting in that he was Chi Chi Rodriguez's godfather from Puerto Rico. And so I met Chi Chi in the early sixties and the only sponsor he had was Aero shirt company. And he was playing on the tour in long sleeve white dress shirts. Cause that's the only shirts they would give him. So, uh, he, uh, I remember he would come to Blyville, you know, a week before the Memphis tournament and uh, stay with George and they'd work on his game. And I played with him every day. You know, in fact, he finished third or fourth or fifth in the tournament. And there was a lot of pressure on him because he had, uh, uh, I think he had to finish like in the top 10 to make enough money to send money back home to his family and then have enough money to eat. And he lived on uh, red beans and rice. And uh, this was long before he was a household name, you know, but he had all these trick shots and he put on quite, he was quite a showman. Um, but then I was introduced to and started taking lessons from uh, Bob Tosky. Mm. And uh, he was at the Ocean Reef Club in North Key Largo, Florida, and then the old Baldy Club in Saratoga, Wyoming. And, and that relationship allowed me to... Um, meet you know and play with arnold palmer and jack nicholas and gary player and uh a number of other pros that you know obviously i would have not had any access to uh what what whatsoever. age what age were you when this was all happening how old were you you know when you're playing or getting coached with and working alongside bob tosky and he's introducing you to some of the greatest not some of the greatest names in golf yeah. I was probably 11. The first time I took lessons, we flew down to Ocean Reef and and my dad went a couple of times and then they would just put me on an airplane. I fly to Miami in the club would fly a little airplane up to the Miami airport, pick me up and fly me down to the, to the resort where Bob was. And I would stay with him or in the hotel, depending on what was going on at his house and take lessons for a week or two. I mean, it wasn't just a lesson and leave if this was, you know, in residence and, uh, I remember my first lesson, my dad was there and Bob told me to go out to the tee and he said, there's a tree out there with a black and white X on a little sign painted on a tree. He said, hit irons toward that X. And it was, for me, it was about a five iron shot. And I was sitting there hitting five irons and I was hitting the ball very well. And uh, they were all falling kind of at the base of the tree or in the close proximity. And I was honestly thinking, you know, how impressed Bob was going to be in my game. And Bob finally came out to the tee and watched me hit a few balls. And he said, do you play any other sports? And, uh, I said, not really, you know, my dad made me quit football and I hurt my ankles playing basketball and I'm not very good at baseball. 
I said, during the winter, I bowl some. He said, I think you ought to spend more time bowling because I don't think you have any future in golf. Turned around and walked off the tee back to the pro shop. So I hit a few more balls and realized he wasn't coming back. So I went back into the pro shop and asked Bob, I said, well, are we going to have a lesson? And I was a precocious 11 or 12 year old. And, and he said, well, we can, he said, but I need to understand if you're willing to do what I ask you to do. And, uh, I said, well, we flew all the way from Arkansas to Florida. You know, I'm obviously here to learn, but he had recognized just in the conversation, the pro shop that I had an ego and an attitude. And so he had to prick that balloon before he even started. And what I think has made him possibly the greatest instructor of golf in the history of the game is his ability to communicate. He knows the game and he knows what he has to change and what order, but he's able to communicate that in a way that very, very few people are able to. And so he pricked my ego and exploded it, you know, in a space of about 60 seconds. And from there on, we were great friends, but uh, the first few minutes of our meeting were <laughs> traumatic to say the least. What a, what an introduction to, uh, you know the world of the world of learning golf and getting better at golf to uh, to learn that lesson uh, so young. It's, uh, it's what a great story. And Bob Tosky, you know, sheep is a world world golf teachers hall of fame. Uh, you know, you, you could have you could spend an hour talking about what that man's achieved in his uh, in his world. Um, oh, he showed me pictures when he won the world championship. You know, and and, and stories about Al Besselink and. Uh, and there are days that, you know, Gary player would be on the end of the tee and he'd help me. And then he'd help some 70 year old lady that was just learning golf and walk down to one of the greatest ball strikers in the world. And he just transitioned from one of those to the other. And, uh, I can remember being at the masters with him. He, he got me a job in the tower of the 18th hole. And this is before cell phones. And I had these Augusta national had these wonderful, binoculars and my job was to sit there and watch who was walking up the 18th fairway so and, and of course there were no electronics and so i'd write on a piece of paper you know it's don january and bob goldby in this group and and hand it to toski and everything for the tv broadcast and we actually watched i actually saw ben hogan shoot 36 30 at augusta wow. and uh and yeah, he was so unhappy, he went to the range and started hitting balls and was out there with car lights on the driving range. And this is back before the ball machines. And so his caddy was out there with the bag and I was sitting there with Toski. And of course I was too young to drink. I was in college at Georgia tech at the time, but I think I wasn't 21. And, uh, and Bob said, close your eyes and listen. And so I did. And as Hogan hit the ball, you realize not only was the trajectory of every shot the same, and not only did these four irons land within two or three feet, it seemed like, you know, every shot he hit, but they all sounded the same. He was making such pure contact. So, you know, I met Mark McCormick walking around. I saw Nicholas shank a ball on number 12 and still make par. And then he eagled 13 and Toski asked me, what would you have done? I said, well, after shanking it, I've been so embarrassed. I'd have tugged it over the green, chipped it on two or three putted. So double, triple bogey. And then I'd been so mad. I would have at least made six or seven on 13. And Nicholas went three, three. And he said, and Mel would have gone six, six or six, seven. I said, yeah. And he said, 
I think you need to focus on aerospace and not on golf. <laughs> so that was one of those sliding doors moments, I guess. No, Mel, I'm I'm more blown away by by these stories than I than I ever could imagine. You mentioned obviously you've mentioned the Masters and you've had a whole load of experience there, but you mentioned Georgia Tech. Now, you know we know Georgia Tech is producing some great golf talent. What was what did Georgia Tech mean for you in playing on the golf team there, and and what was the opportunity that that gave you? Well, Georgia Tech for me, first and foremost, was an education. I went to college to get educated because my goal was not to play on the PGA Tour. My goal was to become an astronaut. And so my dad had graduated from Georgia Tech as an architect. And so it's a wonderful engineering school that I think is ranked around fourth in the world now in both undergraduate and graduate schools. And so it was a wonderful school. It was in the South, you know, only 500 or so miles from uh, the airport in Memphis. And I lived just about 70 miles North of Memphis. So the, the selection of Georgia tech was one, my dad could help me get in Two, It was a great engineering school. It was close to home. The weather was nice. And they offered me a partial golf scholarship. And uh, so it was just a combination of events. Uh, I thought I was pretty smart and made really good grades in high school. I got to Georgia Tech and I found out what smart was. And it was not Mel from Blyville, Arkansas, I can assure you. And so Georgia Tech for me, even though I wound up with graduate degrees, was a struggle, particularly in the beginning. And uh, so uh, we played golf and, you know, I played on the amateur circuit during the summer, but it was late summer before my game came around because unlike my friends, say at the university of Georgia, you know, that were majoring in real estate or physical education, I was majoring in uh, plasma gas dynamics, you know, and taking statistical thermodynamics and nonlinear partial differential equations and those sort of things. And the class would be six people, and, uh, and they would be, you know, a couple of Americans, a couple from China, a couple from India. And a lot of them were, you know, obviously, you know, transplants from their country and they were there for one purpose to learn. So they didn't have any other distractions and they were brilliant. And so the classes were very challenging. I mean, one to keep up. And, uh, so I think what I learned at Georgia Tech more than anything was just, uh, just accomplishing something that at times you just said, I, I, this does not make any sense, you know, and just working through it. And, uh, and uh, golf was something I did. And I was passionate about it. And I was, I played number one for three years and was captain a couple of years. So, you know, I was a good player, but um, it wasn't the, um, the driving influence that maybe other people had had. In fact, I had one year qualified for the U.S. Amateur. I was in Washington, D.C. It was 36 holes, and uh, and I wound up being the medalist. And so there was a reporter there, and I'd, I was a sheltered Arkansas kid. I didn't know anything about reporters, and he asked me. And back then, if you said you wanted to be a professional, you were one. And so you had to be very careful about stating your professional. And he just asked me, you know, he said, did I have those aspirations? And I said, no, not really. You know, I would really prefer to be an astronaut and uh, than a professional golfer. 
And so the next day in the Washington Post, there was a story that basically with big headlines said, man from Mars wins amateur qualifier or something like that. And the rest of the story was just hammering me over the fact that I was taking up a spot from somebody who wanted to make golf their career and that I should have not even been in the qualifying tournament if I had any uh, decency about me. And uh, I was uh, had a meeting scheduled uh, because of graduate school uh, um, in the Navy's flight school schedule. It turned out, I thought I was going right after, you know, undergraduate school, going right in the Navy. And it turned out that uh, it was going to be two years before I would start, you know, the flight school. And it turned out that they could delay my start from the date they gave me by three or four months. I could finish, you know, a master's or PhD program at Georgia Tech. And the Navy recruiter said he couldn't do anything about it. So I had my dad from Arkansas, he just wrote a letter to Senator McClellan and Senator Fulbright and asked them, could they do anything and never heard back from them. And then one day I was at tech and I got a note in my mailbox uh, and uh, there was a registered or certified letter and it's from the Navy and it was from this recruiter. And he asked me to call him at this number. And so I called him and he said, well, I've got a letter here. He said, it's from the chief of Naval operations. And it says your flight school date has been moved four months or five months or whatever it was. And, uh, but now your acceptance into the flight program is contingent upon you finishing, you know, your graduate education. He said, what is all of this about? And I said, I told him, I said, well, we wrote a letter to the two senators. And so anyway, I, I had this meeting to go see them and thank them for interceding on my behalf. And, uh, when I got there, they both, you know, had the newspaper and, uh, and I said, well, there's nothing could be further than the truth. I'm an avid golfer, you know, and passionate about what I do. It's just, that I don't want to be a professional golfer. And, and so I remember Senator Fulbright saying, well, the next time you read something ugly about one of us, he said, just keep this in mind. He said, everything you read in the Washington Post is not necessarily the truth. So. Another great lesson. <laughs> yes. Another great lesson. So at Georgia Tech, Mel, I believe that, you know, that was your way or that was how you were introduced to Augusta. Obviously, yes. it's just the weekend pass where the Augusta, where we would have expected to be on. So it's fresh in all of our minds and hearts that you know we we all missed Augusta. You had this amazing experience and and time, you know, being in and around that environment on a what I understand is a fairly frequent and regular basis with a, a pretty high <laughs> high degree of access. So, what was that like? How did that eventuate and come about? Well, I had, uh, I had my car broken into and they stole a, a tachometer and a camera I had in the back seat. And I got a check from the insurance company that came to me instead of my dad. I think at that point I was over 18. So technically it had to come to me, but, uh, and the check was for $1,800 and Atlanta athletic club, which at that time had East Lake, which originally was 36 holes. And then they sold 18 and became, you know, 
high density housing. And then the East Lake that everyone is familiar with now was the golf course. And, and that was one of the courses that Georgia Tech played our golf matches. So I knew the head pro there, a wonderful man named Harold Sargent. And, uh, and, and they were building a new facility in Duluth, which is, you know, where the facility is now, the 36 holes. It's had the U.S. Open, the PGA, and the U- Women's U.S. Open on the other course. And that's wonderful facility and they were building all that and they decided to sell east lake and they sold the downtown club the atlanta athletic club and uh, they sold uh well there was another club and they downsized the lake club but anyway they were looking for young members and so i had played golf with uh charlie harrison and richard waters who were really quite renowned amateur golfers in the southern united states and they said well you ought to we all, you know, you could, we'll write your recommendation. You ought to join the athletic club. And it was, so I did, and it was 1200 bucks. It's probably 65,000 now, but you know, it was $1,200 and I joined the Atlanta athletic club. So even when the golf team wasn't out there, I got to know Harold Sargent and they built a trophy room for Bobby Jones trophies. In fact, one of the trophies they had was the ball he holed out with at all four majors in 1930 is on display in this one, you know, it's like a candelabra, you know, but with four yeah. little slots and the ball he hold out with in all four of the tournaments is there, you know, in the letter he wrote the USGA uh, reminding them that the U.S. Open had never been held at a tournament in a site south of the Mason-Dixon line, saying that he was sure the USJ would correct that at some point. And when they decided to correct it, he'd like to recommend the, the Atlanta Athletic Club to be that facility. And then in 1976, you know, this, we had the U.S. Open there with Jerry Pate won. So Harold Sargent had told me that uh, I'd been asking about Bobby Jones because of the trophy room. And he said, well, he was a good friend of the family. He said, I'll... He said, I'll introduce you one day. And, uh, and I didn't press the matter. He said, I don't know when it'll be. And in fact, I think he said, don't bug me about it, but you know, it'll happen. But just one day out of the blue, our golf coach, uh, came up to me and said, have you ever met Bobby Jones? And I said, no, but you know, Mr. Sargent says that he's going to introduce me one of these days, but I've never met him. And he said, well, you may have a chance to meet him. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, that's all I know. And that's all I can tell you. You may have a chance to meet him one day. I said, through the school. And he said, yes, through the school. So it was probably a month later. I got a note again in my mailbox, you know, and it said that uh, uh, coach Dodd wanted to see me. This is Bobby Dodd, the guy that the Georgia tech football stadium is named after, you know, and he like bear Bryant, you know, is an icon of Southern football. And, you know, golfers did not go see Bobby Dodd. I mean, that was just unheard of. And so I thought, well, gee, I haven't been playing that bad, you know. <laughs> so, but to keep up, that one of the things they gave me was uh, tutors. And so basically for every hour I was in class, I had an hour of tutoring just because I was gone so much that I needed that to keep up. And so I went in there and he asked me, he said, uh, first question out of the box, he said, nice to meet you. I never met him before. You know, and uh, he said, have you ever met Bobby Jones? And I said, no, but you're the second person has asked me that in the last month. And he said, well, you're, you're, you're going to have an opportunity. And he said, and he said, and given with your tutors and as much as you're gone, he's going to ask you something that I'm not sure you have time to do, but it's your decision to make. He said, but I want you to know how important he is to this school, to the state. 
into the country. And at that point, I didn't realize it, but the only person in the history of Earth to have two New York ticker tape parades was Bobby Jones. And, uh, and I said, well, what's going to happen? He said, well, he'll contact you and it's for him to talk to you about. He said, it's a serious offer. Take it seriously. If you want to do it, do it. If you don't or don't think you have the time, don't. And there's you know, no repercussions, but don't blow this off, young man. And I said, uh, he didn't use those words. Those are contemporary words. But he said, you know, don't ignore this. And it was like another month. And my roommate was a football player. And I came in and there was just a note and said, call Mr. Jones. And there was a telephone number. And it was a, and I, you know, and I did not connect the dots. And so I called the number and the lady said, oh, yes, Mr. Jones is expecting your call. And when the, she answered the phone, she rattled off a name, you know, it's like Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Finner, and Smith, you know, you know, a law firm. Yeah. And, um, and so this voice comes on a speakerphone and he said, Mel, and I said, yes, sir. And he said, hi, this is Bobby. And it, you know, it took me a second to process it. Mr. Jones, Bobby, I'm talking to Bobby Jones. And then all, you know, the other two conversations, uh, came back into my mind and, uh, and I said, yes, sir. It's nice to talk with you. And, uh, he's, he was very to the point. He said, I don't know if you know it, but I'm in a wheelchair. And of course I'm a smart ass. And so I said, well, I think everybody in America knows that Mr. Jones and we're all very sorry. And, um, I said, Mr. Sergeant, you know, has spoken to me about some of the physical difficulties, you know, you've had and will continue to have with, uh, you know, I can't pronounce it, but it's Syringomyelia, Syringomyelia, S-Y-R-I-N-G-O-M-Y-E-L-I-A, it's very difficult to say, hmm. but it's a, it's a neurological problem. Although you get uh, fluid cavities in your spinal cord and it causes pain and then paralysis and it, very similar to ALS in, in the symptoms, you know, but he was losing control of his body. And he's, and so he, he laughed and said, uh, well, he didn't think that was true. He said, but that, uh, he didn't much care for nurses. And so, uh, what he was, what he was proposing was, uh, that I would come to his house and my job would be to lift him out of his wheelchair and put him in bed. And he said he went to bed between eight thirty and nine at night. And, um, and I needed to be there, you know, no later than eight o'clock, just to ensure there was an overlap and that the cook stayed there, but the cook was unable to lift him and his wife, Mary was unable to lift him. And the kids were grown at that time and not in the house. And, uh, so, uh, he said he had a bedroom I could sleep. He said, if you're tired from golf or, you know, it's been a long day in a lab or whatever you can sleep, I've got a study you can study, um, you know, TV and radio, you know, he's, he said, I'm still a practicing attorney and I'm working on briefs, but you know, sometimes I won't have much to do and we can talk. Uh, and he said, the cook will stay here. till you get here? And she'll fix for dinner, whatever you want to eat. And if you can be here at five 30, you can eat with the family. And they called us the boys. And, you know, I was one of the boys. And he said, we always set a place for the boys. So if you, if you come at five 30, you know, you'll eat with, you know, with the family. And he said, but the cook will stay here to fix whatever you want when you get here. 
And he said, and the pay is $5 a night. And he said, uh, would you be willing to help me? And I said, well, sure. And as it turned out, I was going to the athletic club to practice because the practice facilities, the balls were brand new. And instead of going to Eastlake, I would drive to Duluth and coming back to the Georgia Tech campus, I'd have to come through the Buckhead and West Paces Ferry area of Atlanta, which is his house is very near the governor's mansion at the time. And so if I was in town, you know, I was kind of the go-to guy because the other people that did it were friends of the family and they tend to be down toward Emory and, and Decatur, you know, south. And that was a long drive through through Atlanta. And uh, so um, I started, I guess, in 1967 and did it for several years. And uh, it was uh, quite an experience. I uh, obviously knew about the Grand Slam. I, I didn't know about, you know, the four iron he hit out of a sandy waste area on the 17th hole at Royal Litham that so unnerved his opponent that he wound up winning. Yeah. And, uh, and quite frankly, I was, had so much homework to do and it was so competitive in the classes that I would come there, have a sandwich, you know, and I needed to get to homework, you know, cause I had, they arranged my schedule to be, you know, class in the morning. And then in the afternoon, I was expected to go to the golf course and we didn't get hurt like football players, but, um, but it was the amount of time that golf took the practice and playing and then chipping and putting and the expectations of us were that, you know, we, we put in the time, you know, on the golf team. And so, um, I didn't have a lot of spare time. Yeah. And so it's, it's one of the regrets of my life that I didn't engage him more in conversation than I did. But this was 67. This is, you know, Vietnam was raging and the Students for Democratic Society, SDS, and the Weather Underground was going on. And so he was much more, he wasn't watching, you know, soap operas on TV. He was a brilliant man, a man of letters. He wrote and thought elegantly. And, uh, and uh, so he was interested in current events, you know, and what was going on on the tech campus because, you know, he'd graduated from Georgia Tech and then got a, a degree in literature from uh, Harvard and then went to uh, Emory Law School. And his dad had, it was a lawyer and always wanted him to be a lawyer. And, and so when he retired in 1930 at the age of 28, it was as much, it wasn't really a paying job and he was as famous as anybody could get, but he had a family to support, yeah. you know? And so uh, he was a lawyer and that's what he, he did and what he became. Uh, but it's one of life's regrets that I didn't engage him in more conversations. But even the first night I was there, he asked me, had I ever played Augusta? And I said, no, actually, I haven't. I've been there a bunch of times because of my relationship with Bob Toskey. And, of course, back then, Augusta was still a very private club. But it's not the, it's not like it is today. I, I use the word in love, but it's almost like a shrine. I mean, it's, you know, every golfer on the earth knows about it and wants to go there. And it's very you know, seriously restricted. And back then you just couldn't walk up and play, but it wasn't quite what it is today. And, um, he said, well, you can go anytime you want to play. And he said, you know, you can't spend money and you'll be treated like, a like a member and, and, uh, and you'd be my guest. And, uh, and this was like a Wednesday night or Thursday. I said, well, I couldn't be there before Saturday afternoon. 
<laughs> I have a physics lab every Saturday morning from eight to 12, four hours. And, and uh, such was the life of uh, someone studying aerospace engineering because all the football and basketball players were industrial management and I was taking plasma physics, yeah. you know, which was just unbelievable. But uh, as luck would have it, the next day they canceled my physics lab. And so all of a sudden then I could leave after my classes on Friday. So I jumped in my car and of course there's no cell phones and had to stop and get gas. And I called the club and said, by the way, instead of coming tomorrow afternoon, I'm coming right now. Is that okay? And they said, absolutely fine. You know, we'll be ready. And so I got there, you know, it's a, I don't know, Augusta's probably 120 miles from Atlanta. I got there in the afternoon and the pro was waiting and said, uh, I saved a caddy for you. You want to play? And he said, you'll be the only player on the course. And I said, course, absolutely. Let's go. So we headed out and, uh, um, another interesting story. We got to the fifth hole and I hit a tee shot and we're walking up the fairway and you look up toward the green and there's a maintenance cart sitting in front of the green. And there was a guy that was working Had his, you know, they had a tarp out to the side and the grass had been cut out, you know, very precisely. Once we got up there, you could see how precise it had been cut. And then the dirt had been dug and put on the tarp with along with the grass. And this guy was working on obviously a broken sprinkler hit. And, but he had, his, you know, his half his chest was down in this hole as we walked up and it was just the two of us and it startled him and everything. And, uh, he came out of that hole, like a bolt of lightning, you know, and looked at me just with a look of astonishment and wiped his hands on his pants, stuck out his hand and said, Mr. Hughes, welcome to Augusta national. And this is a guy working on a broken sprinkler. I'm there 24 hours earlier than I'm supposed to be. And he knew who I was and, and shook my hand and called me by name. And so we're, we're leaving with, the, with the, uh, with the caddy and headed to number six. And I said, how is it possible that he knows who I am? He said, well, there are not many members here at all. He said, so having somebody here is, you know, it's very few number of people. And, uh, he said, and I said, but I'm not a member. I'm just a guest. He said, Oh, Mr. Hughes. He said, you're better than a member. You're Mr. Jones's guest. Unbelievable. And that's when I started to realize that, you know, I was in uncharted territory for a young college kid that I didn't even begin to appreciate, you know, the situation I was in and, we got to number and uh, got to number nine and uh, oh, another story when we were walking up, the, the caddy said, he's not supposed to be here. And I said, why? He's got to work on the sprinkler. He said, yeah, but they're not allowed to work on the golf course around the members. And that's when I said, well, I'm not a member. And he said, oh, you're better than a member. And, and, and so we were walking up the ninth and, and the caddy goes, oh, and I go, what? And he said, you see that guy standing on the back of the ninth green and there's this very thin, very tall man in a green jacket. And I said, yeah, who's that? He said, that's Cliff Roberts. And he said, you do not want to piss him off. Even as a friend of Bobby Jones, that's not a healthy thing to do. (laughs) So he wanted to know, and he couldn't have been nicer, but, uh, 
wanted to know what I wanted for dinner, what time I was going to eat dinner and what time I was going to get up. I was going to play 18 or 36 and what time was breakfast. And, and of course I was just saying, well, I'll, how about I get up when I wake up? What time's that going to be? And I realized I was not going to disengage from him until I gave him the specifics he was looking for. It was like, well, we'll finish up here at six 30 or something, you know, and, uh, I'll take a shower and I'd been told to bring a jacket. So I did have a sport coat and, you know, and you know, I said, so I, I, I'm going to be at dinner at seven. He said, fine. He said, what time do you want to get up for breakfast? And, uh, I realized I was going to have to give him time. I said, how about seven 30? He said, that'd be fine. You know what you want for breakfast? I said, no, I don't eat breakfast. Well, you got to eat breakfast. You know, you can't play 36 holes around here without eating breakfast. And he said, he said, I'd, I'd recommend the corned beef hash. He said, it's the best thing on the menu in the morning. And then the pimento cheese sandwiches at lunch, when you make the turn, it's what you want. And dinner is just whatever you want. But so it, you know, and so I was awoken at seven 30 and it was Cliff Roberts waking me up, you know? So it was like, I was smothered with attention and I won't say that I was ever a hundred percent comfortable yeah. in that situation that, and I know they were watching. I always felt like I was being watched and they, in the situations were in, they knew when I left there where I was headed. And they were afraid that if I did, they did or said anything wrong, I might convey that to Mr. Jones and that, you know, he would be unhappy with them. So they watched me, but it, it quite frankly was somewhat of an uncomfortable feeling, but I did that for several years as one of the boys and every night next to his bed, there would be a crisp $5 bill. I was a poor college student. I didn't need the $5, but it was, uh, it was kind of quaint, you know, uh, it's, uh, I'm actually quite emotional listening to that story. Mel. it's, uh, it's unbelievable, unbelievable that, uh, what an experience, what an experience. Sure. I just wish I had been more yeah, I, I can self-aware if I could go back, I, you know, like I said, my brother was very, very sick. I, you know, if I could go back, I would fix that, you yeah. know, and yeah. uh, my mom and dad had a good relationship and I had a very happy childhood, but uh, my brother could have been more healthy would have been a nice thing, but on a pretty short list of things I would do over uh, would be to go back and more fully appreciate the, you know, the opportunity to sit and talk with him about life. And, you know, I heard rumors about him walking off St. Andrews. I didn't ask him about that. I, you know, I didn't ask him about what it felt like to get the key to the city. I didn't ask him about what it was like to be in a New York ticker tape parade. You know, I just, uh, did you discuss his wins, you know, his four wins in that one particular year of uh, the Opens and the um, um, on the U.S. and British soil as an amateur? Yeah, I, you know, I did bring that up because that's one thing I did know. And he was so humble about it all. It was just, you know, it was kind of, oh, that was a long time ago. And, you know, I was a good player and I had a lot of demons. You know, he was a very emotional club thrower. And, and he said I had to learn to not just play the course, but control my emotions. And, uh, and he said, I was torn cause I had a family to, to take care of. And even though I had a lot of notoriety, you know, if you will, Madison Avenue didn't exist anything like it does today. I mean, if, if a 
sports figure repeated something equivalent to what Bobby Jones did in 2020, I mean, they would be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And so he had New York ticker tape parades, but you know, there wasn't television, Mm. you know, there weren't, there weren't the, the advertisement deals. There wasn't a Nike to do golf shoes or foot joy, you know? So it was a, a different situation. He said, I had a family to feed and, and, uh, and uh, had a wife and a dad that were, you know, he said, and I came to realization that uh, I was happy as a golfer, as an amateur, and I didn't want to be a professional. But, you know, professional golfers back then, you know, Harry Varden, the stories about him not being, you know, allowed in the clubs, you know, that he was the head pro of because he wasn't, quote, unquote, a gentleman. And so there were a lot of those stories. So we did talk about it, you know, what it was like, but he really demurred a lot of that. It was like, well, it was a long time ago and, you know, it was kind of fortunate and I got a good break and I was a good player, but, uh, I'm proud of what I accomplished, but there's, um, I'm prouder of, you know, being a dad and what I've done in the legal profession and my education. And that was just one facet of his life. One, one of the people that he worked, worked with and alongside and Dr. McKenzie, you know, it was obviously, you know, very uh, strikes a, a strong chord with certainly us here in Victoria you know, that are sandbelt golfers because Dr. McKenzie had right. such a great influence on on shaping what we now call sandbelt golf. Did you ever get any insight into his work with Alistair McKenzie? I did not. Yeah, no. Well, this is one of the one of, one of those it things. was sincere when I'm saying I wish yeah. I could go yeah. back. Yeah. There's yeah. so many things I know now that uh, would have been of interest that. Uh, they just didn't come up because most nights, honestly, I got there, you know, that, you know, I'd call ahead and tell the cook, you know, just fix me a hamburger and, you know, and you can leave. And yeah. so yep. I, I choked down a hamburger and, a, you know, you couldn't, I actually preferred Pepsi, but in Atlanta, Georgia, Pepsi was a, a product that didn't exist because of Coca-Cola. <laughs> so I'd have a Coke and a hamburger and, uh, exchange a few pleasantries and everything. And then I had homework I had to go do. And so. So over that journey, Mel, how many times would you have played at Augusta? Oh gosh, I don't know. I think John might remember, I, you know, maybe, I don't know, a hundred. Yeah. Wow. Well. I don't know, maybe it was 75 or 50. Yeah, you know, yeah, I really don't yeah, remember, yeah, yeah. but it but, was but, any but, time but, I could drive 120 miles, you know, and, uh, uh, and of course it's closed, you know, from uh, back then it closed a couple of weeks after, you know, so around the first of May, May day, you know, until September it was closed because, uh, uh, because the grass that they had then was just rye grass that was overseeded over the Bermuda. And, uh, uh, so once the temperature started going up and the humidity go up, rye grass disappeared and, uh, they didn't want to try to play it on Bermuda. So the course closed. So it was, it, it was only open during the time I was going to school Yeah, and, uh, as difficult as my major was, and I was double majoring in physics and aerospace engineering. And it was just, uh, and I wasn't the most brilliant student. So Mel, oh, I've got an interesting, uh, a little, a little question for you from your experience. What do you think a November masters is going to look like as far as the golf course is going is concerned? One of the azaleas won't be blooming in that time of the year. It can be, you know, more overcast in the fall than it is during the, during the spring. So, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if it's a little wetter or muggier and certainly the weather is going to be different. Presumably they won't change the greens like they, like I believe they do each year. 
So they'll be they'll be greens that are that are two years old, which will benefit certainly in terms of the um, the firmness and the speed. Well, you know, they have the sub air system under each green and under certain fairways, so they can they can pull moisture out, they can pump warm air in. And so I think their ability to get the golf course to be as close to what it is in April, there's, there's no golf club in the world that will have the ability they have in order to replicate the conditions of April. It will look differently because, you know, the, the dogwoods won't be blooming and the azaleas won't be blooming, but it's still a gorgeous golf course, even in the dead of winter. And Augusta, you know, is on the, you know, coastal town, you know, in the southeastern part of the United States. So unlike Denver here, with eight inches of snow on the ground today, it's it's a little different climate. Mel, if you had to recall all of your master's uh, experiences, you know, what, what are some of the key moments for you? What are the what are your favorite memories that uh, that you you know recall on when you think about the masters and what it means to you and, and just your connection with Augusta there? Well I, I I remember very vividly that round of uh, Ben Hogan's. When you were in the in the tower at 18 there? Well, no, after he I actually followed him around and watched oh, right. him shoot the 66 yeah. and then watched him hit balls afterwards. And and I'd watch Gary player practice, you know, there at Ocean Reef and at the Masters. And, and they occasionally came. Like I said, I lived near Memphis, so they would come to the Memphis tournament occasionally. And so I marvel, I, you know, I, I enjoyed more watching them on the range than I did playing the game just because, you know, to see the preciseness with which they struck the ball and the consistency of the trajectory and, and you know, like Tiger hits the, uh, you know, nine shots with each club, you know, a high hook, a high straight, high fade and medium and then low. I mean, and when he's done that, he moves to the next club. And, and Hogan could sit there and just hit these four irons with a ever so slight hook. And it was just it was just remarkable to watch. And uh, I was there when DiVincenzo signed the incorrect scorecard that Tommy Aaron had filled out, you know, incorrectly. Uh, yeah, I, I find myself – I've only ever been to one, one major, and that was the Open at Troon in 2016. And if I reflect on my time there – I I reckon I spent as much time, maybe not quite, but I spent a lot of time sitting on the, the beautiful stand that they erect behind the range, just watching everyone hit balls. And uh, so I can really, I really feel uh, that connection there, just watching the ball flights and watching them hit and, and listening for the sound that you, you know, articulated so beautifully when you, you know, were watching um, uh, on the range there. So, yeah, unbelievable. Part two, we switch over to Mel's other passion, and that's his passion of photography but also his passion for global golf travel. He's one of the handfuls of guys that uh, around the world that's played a number of the big top 100 lists. There's not too many places in the world that he hasn't been to for golf travel or golf play. It's always interesting to hear. Thanks for tuning in again. Look forward to hearing part two of the Mel Hughes story. Mm-hmm.